31st of July 2008, Manitoba, Canada. Tim McLean is returning home on a Greyhound bus from summer work on the carnival circuit. He would not leave the bus alive. This is the case of the Greyhound bus murder. I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Islanders, how are you this week? I have a case that you may know about. Not only the brutality of the murder will shock you, but the justice dealt out after will give you the Cambo rage for sure. So let's get stuck into it. Now, it's the 30th of July, 2008, Manitoba, Canada. The victim tonight is Tim McLean. He was born on the 3rd of October, 1985. So he was 22 at the time. He was on Greyhound bus number 1170 that he boarded at 12.30am in Edmonton, Alberta to get back home to his home, his place in Winnipeg. It it travelled via the Yellowhead Highway through Saskatchewan. (laughs) Saskatchewan! He had had been working as a carny during the summer carnival season. Now, this is a long trip in a car. Even if you go the best route, it's about 14 hours or 1,300 kilometres, which is about 800 miles. Now, on this Greyhound bus number 1170, it's almost a day between Edmonton and Winnipeg. Now, that's a long way to go in a bus, but it seems to be cheap. Even now, the fare's only about 100 bucks. Now, Tim was a fan of the Insane Clown Posse which is a hardcore hip-hop duo who perform in clown makeup and their fans are called Juggalos or Juggalettes. And they, they also don the makeup of clowns. Tim was a Juggalo and he had his own clown makeup design. His MySpace name was Joker Wild and he had several Joker Wild tattoos. Carol Dedelli, Tim's mum, described him as her wild child a free spirit, incredibly bright and intelligent, and an avid reader. School seemed to be so easy for him, he got a bit bored of it and dropped out so he could work with a carnival fair so he could travel the country. She said he was the kind of kid that would throw himself into any group and get along with everybody. He was the peacemaker, so if there were a couple of people arguing or not getting along, he would step in and smooth things over. So let's get back to this bus ride. As I said, Tim had boarded the bus at Edmonton, Alberta at around 12.30am. Now at 5.55pm, the bus stopped at Ericsson, Manitoba. It's here the 40-year-old Vincent Lee joined the bus sitting near the front. So Vincent Lee, who's he? 
Vince Lee was born April 30, 1968 in Dandong, China. He went to the Uni of Wuhan Institute of Technology and graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Computing. And that was 1992. He immigrated to Canada in 2001 with his wife Anna gaining citizenship in 2006. He did further studies at CDI College in Computer Programming, graduating in 2002. He seemed to not be able to get employment in his chosen field of IT, but he held several jobs, such as delivering newspapers, caretaking in a church, assisting at McDonald's. He also worked at the Canadian Tire as a sales assistant. He worked at Walmart until late May or early June 2008 after a disagreement with fellow employees and had asked for some time off just before this as he wanted to go to Winnipeg. He had few friends but was not seen as a violent man by any of his co-workers or people who knew him. He did have a wife, Anna, and she divorced him in 2006. Now, Vince had actually started his journey the day before, on the 29th. He got on the 12.30am Greyhound bus from Edmonton and planned to go to Thunder Bay via Winnipeg. He'd brought the ticket under the name Wong Pent. When the bus arrived at Ericsson, Manitoba, Lee got off the bus, even though the driver told him it was not his stop. Now, the next bus to arrive at Ericsson would be the 1170 bus the next day. So Lee spent 24 hours in Ericsson, and this is where things just started to get a bit weird. He slept on a bench near a grocery store that night, with witnesses saying they saw him at 3am, sitting bolt upright with his eyes open. Lee spent the day getting rid of all of his personal possessions, either selling them or burning them. Apparently he had uh, two or three bags at this stage. Lee offered his laptop to a kid, 15-year-old Darren Beattie, who, who had been working just across the road. He offered it to him for 600 bucks. Now, Darren told him he didn't have 600 but he was able to get it down and buy it for just 60 So now we get to the afternoon of the 30th of July, 2008. Tim McLean, he's on the 1170 Greyhound bus from Edmonton, approaching Ericsson. He's been on the bus nearly 18 hours. The Ericsson stop, it's just a quick drop-off and pick-up stop. It's not a full rest or food stop. So at 5.55pm, Vince Lee joins the bus at Ericsson. He sits near the front. He's wearing dark sunglasses and is carrying what is left of his possessions in a duffel-type bag. He doesn't speak to anyone and just stares towards the front as the bus takes off. The bus made a rest stop between Brandon and Portage La Prairie. Tim got off for a smoke and after he returned to his seat. Lee got up from his seat at the front of the bus and walked down the aisle towards the back. He looked at every person as he slowly walked down the aisle and then when he came to where Tim was sitting, who was against the window and had a free seat next to him, he decided to sit there. They were one row from the back in front of the toilets on board. Stephen Allison, who was sitting across the aisle with his wife, had felt something was a little bit off with Vince. 
He noted that he had hold of a toilet roll that he would not let go of. He would jam it under his chin when he went to open his bag and take a drink from a two-litre bottle of what looked like lemon tea or one of those tea drinks. Stephen just felt really uneasy about the passenger opposite him. Now, later on, when Vince was asked why he sat next to Tim, he said that Tim gave him a friendly smile and said hi. Tim was known to be friendly with everyone he met, being able to introduce himself around a large crowd and know everyone in their story within no time. Sadly, this friendliness would be what fucks him up, as we will soon find out. Anyway, at around 8.30pm, Greyhound Bus 1170 was approximately 18 kilometres, or I guess about 11 miles west of Portage La Prairie, on the Trans-Canada Highway, and all hell is about to break loose. As Stephen Allison describes it, Tim had his earbuds in and asleep against the window. Vince Lee reached into his bag and pulled out a large sheathed knife. Before Stephen could react, Lee pulled the knife from the sheath and stabbed Tim McClay in the neck. Stephen yelled at the top of his voice, Stop the bus! Someone's getting stabbed! Stephen then ran down the aisle yelling, Pull over! Pull over! At this stage, Tim McLean had been stabbed several times and was trying to escape Lee's attack. In trying to jump over the seats to get away, Tim fell into the aisle with Lee on top of him. Witnesses told of hearing Stephen yelling to pull over and the noise of the attack up the back of the bus. The bus pulls over on the side of the highway as passengers are frantically trying to get off the bus. Stephen, who'd run to the front of the bus to warn everyone and the driver, sees that not only is his wife still stuck in her seat, fucking petrified, but a mother and her two sons are trapped in the rows behind her. As Lee continues to stab Tim in the aisle, Stephen's able to reach his wife and the mother with her two children and get them over the seats so that they could run off the bus. Stephen said at this stage there was no helping Tim, as he'd been stabbed 40 or 50 times at this early stage. His mission was to get everyone off the bus and away from the attacker. After everyone had exited the bus, Lee walked towards the front of the bus and tried to exit. The bus driver, Bruce Martin, was able to close the door, but it closed on Lee's arm, who was holding the bloodied knife. Lee was able to pull his arm back into the bus. He walked back to the rear of the bus and continued defiling Tim's body. 911, of course, by now, was called. A second Greyhound bus uh, driven by Bernie Skirrup, I think that's your name, mate, That was carrying the passenger overload. He noticed that it was strange for the bus to pull over like like it had, so he pulled over as well. Bernie saw that Lee was at the back of the bus, so he got on to see what was happening. He could see Lee trying to cut off Tim's head and that Tim was obviously dead and beyond help. Lee looked up looked up to, to him and said, Call emergency. At this time, a truck driver, Chris Alguire, also pulled over to assist after seeing all the passengers outside of the parked bus. 
He grabbed an iron bar and entered the bus with Bernie. Lee then picked up the severed head of Tim McLean by the hair and started walking towards them at the front of the bus with bloodied knife in the other hand. Bernie and Chris backed out of the bus and barricaded the door. Bernie cut the power to the bus as he could see Lee move to the front and try to open the door. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police arrived about 10 or maybe 20 minutes after the attack had first started. Now this is where things get a little distressing. The Mounties have a preserve life policy. So rather than storm the bus and threaten to shoot Lee, unless he surrendered, they decided to wait it out as backup arrived. And as more police arrived, Lee started to mutilate Tim's body further. Corporal Harder of the RCMP tried talking to Lee and asked him to drop the knife out of a small window located in the bathroom at the rear of the bus. Lee mumbled something like he had to stay on the bus forever. At this stage, with the Mounties seemingly in analysis paralysis outside of the bus, Lee further mutilated the head and body of Tim McLean using not only the knife, but now a pair of scissors. A constable Brown and Corporal Smith noted that Lee would smell, then eat parts of Tim's body, then lick the blood from his fingers. Lee continued to mutilate Tim's body, walking up and down the aisle, sometimes holding Tim's head, and sometimes with other internal organs or body parts. Still, the Mounties watched and took no action. At around 1.20am, Lee broke open a side window, threw out some personal belongings, the knife and also the scissors, He then went through that same window, landing headfirst onto the knife. The Mounties jumped Lee, who was resisting arrest, so they tasered him several times until they could handcuff him. He was arrested and taken to the Portage General Hospital with a gash on his right hand and a cut to his head behind the right ear. Now in Lee's pocket, and this is disturbing, they found a plastic bag containing Tim's ears tongue and nose. In several other plastic bags on the bus, they found other body parts and organs. Tim's eyes and part of his heart were not found and it was presumed that Lee ate them. Tim had suffered not only the mutilation, but at least a hundred stab wounds to his body. Lee would tell psychologists that God told him to kill and that if he didn't kill Tim, Tim would kill him. So it's pretty obvious that Lee was mentally ill. And that's something that I'm not arguing is incorrect. You know, I he is obviously mentally ill. Let's go on. He attacked him without any provocation. He mutilates his body and cannibalizes it. And then tells the doctors that he was told to do it by God. Okay, so maybe you can guess where the next part of the sorry saga is going. Well, Lee is charged with second-degree murder and his defence team plead not criminally responsible and that's called the insanity defence. So, he accepted that he carried out the offence, this is Lee, but he, at the time, was unable to form the necessary mental element that his actions would cause a crime to be committed. 
The defence psychiatrist said that Lee performed the attack because God's voice told him Tim was a force of evil and was about to execute him. The presiding judge, John Scurfield, accepted the diagnosis and ruled that Lee was not criminally responsible for the killing. Lee was remanded to the Selkirk Mental Health Centre. Okay. (laughs) So, the justice system found he was insane at the time of the murder. But for sure, for sure they will lock him up and throw away the key. For sure they're going to do this. What do you think, Islanders? Ah, well, let me read out a bit of a timeline of the events that happened less than three years after this horrific attack. Okay, this is going to bring on the rage. For those who know the story, maybe you don't know this little bit at the end, but for those who know the story, it's going to bring the rage for sure. This is one of the most rageful things. Look, I'll read these out from the wiki. As it was written in the Wikipedia, that's pretty concise there, straight to the point. On May the 30th, 2011, that's less than three years, right? The CBC, I guess that's the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, reported that Lee was responding well to his psychiatric treatment and that his doctor had recommended that he receive more freedoms phased in over several months. Okay, I don't know what that means, more freedoms. Maybe, you know, they let him go to the toilet by himself. I have no idea. But, well, look, we're going to have an idea in a minute. On May the 17th, 2012, so a year later, the National Post reported that Lee had been granted temporary passes that would allow him out of the Selkirk Selkirk Mental Health Centre for visits to the town of Selkirk supervised by a nurse and a peace officer. What the fuck is a peace officer? Anyway, in an interview, Lee spoke for the first time saying that he began hearing the voice of God in 2004 and he wanted to save the people from an alien attack. Okay. Now we get two more, less than two more years. On February the 27th, 2014, the CBC reported that on March the 6th, Lee would be allowed to have unsupervised visits to Selkirk, starting at 30 minutes and expanding to full day trips. Now since 2013, he had been allowed to have supervised visits to Lockport, Winnipeg and nearby beaches. I mean... What the fuck? Oh, let's take him out to the beach for the day. Oh. Anyway, it it gets worse. Let's keep going. On February the 27th, 2015, CBC News reported that Lee was given unsupervised day passes to visit Winnipeg so long as he carried, get this, so long as he carried a functioning cellular telephone while using them. Why? What's it got to have a phone for? On May the 8th, 2015, CTV News reported that Lee would be granted passes to group homes in the community. Well, that's good. He can sleep overnight now. In February 2016, it was reported 
that Lee had legally changed his name to Will Baker. And to any Will Bakers out there, I feel sorry for you. And it was, and he was seeking to leave his group home to leave, live independently. Now, he won the right to live alone in February 26, 2016, upon the recommendation of the Criminal Code Review Board. Who are they? On February 10, 2017, the Manitoba Criminal Code Review Board ordered Lee be discharged. Lee was granted an absolute discharge. There will be no legal obligations or restrictions pertaining to Lee's independent living. Now what the fuckity fuck fuck I say? This is crazy shit. You can't make this shit up. Eight years, six months and 11 days from when he attacked, mutilated and cannibalised, but by the law, he didn't murder Tim McLean. Vince Lee, also known as Will Baker, is totally free. What the fuck is the Canadian justice system thinking? Don't they think that the family, the other passengers, the drivers, the truck driver, plus all the law enforcement and first responders, all the people from that day aren't carrying a life sentence over this shocking event. But this crazed fuckwit could walk free because he was judged insane at the time and now he's okay. So he can go about his life as a free man. Now, these so-called medical officials and review boards try to justify that people like him can be rehabilitated so they can continue their shitty and justify their shitty jobs. It's fucking insane, all right? More insane than Vince Lee. On July the 17th, 2014, the Toronto Sun reported that one of the first officers on the scene, Corporal Ken Baker of the RCMP, had committed suicide. The family stated in his obituary that he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, this wasn't just, of course, from this incident, but you can imagine most of the PTSD was from Lee's action on that day. So let's hope the next bus Lee gets on is the Karma Bus 666 to hell. Now, there are a few things that happened at this time that are interesting coincidences. The first one is about the movie The Black Knight. Now that was released on the 14th of July 2008 in New York City, just two weeks before the attack on Tim. This is the one where Heath Ledger stars as the Joker. Now as I mentioned before, Tim had a MySpace page called Joker Wild and he had a couple of Joker tats on his body. He was a juggalo. Now you know how the Joker in a deck of cards usually has the Joker holding a pole with a little small Joker head at the end? Well, the promo shots of Heath Ledger as the Joker showed him initially holding up a Joker card. Now, on that Joker card, instead of a Joker with a small pole of a small Joker head on top, it was a sword with a decapitated head at the end. So that sword was shoved into the head. Now, these promo shots were quickly altered by the studio and changed to a picture of Batman. So how how would that be, eh? Also, Greyhound 
had just started a new started a new promo. It tried to show how friendly it was to take the bus rather than the car, you know, road rage. Its slogan was, there's a reason you've never heard of bus rage. These posters were quickly covered up after the attack on Tim McLean. If you, if you Google Greyhound bus rage promotion, you'll see the picture that I'm talking about. I might actually put it on Facebook, don't I? Now, one last thing. Remember Darren Beatty got the laptop for 60 bucks? Well, police did confiscate that and he didn't get it back. But a kind-hearted businessman in Ericsson or somewhere who found out about this bought him a full brand new replacement. So, hmm. Anyway, so that's my take on the Greyhound bus murder. Yes, I'm saying murder because really it wasn't murder and the Canadian justice system fucked it up. So, that's the end of the show. Now, before we get into the shout-outs, again, I'd like to say I've started to upload some of the episodes to YouTube to start to get a greater audience reach. At this initial stage, there won't be any fancy video or the camera on me or anything. It'll be strictly for those that listen to true crime via YouTube. I've got the Samantha Knight case and the Bega Schoolgirl cases up as I speak. This case will probably go up because I can edit it different on the run. So each week, the current case will probably end up on there. Uh, please subscribe to the channel and share with your friends. We'll try and get the channel going, see how many people we can get on there. So now to the Patreon shout-outs. A big shout-out to Julie. Now, Bloom Nye? Thank you so much, Julie. I'm not sure that's how you pronounce your name, but Boomfuckalunga, uh, Julie, thank you so much. Thank you all so much for your support, and thanks so much to all present and past patron supporters of the island. It really does make a difference, as you know. True Crime Island is totally listener-supported podcast. I keep it ad-free, as I know you don't like them, and neither do I. If you want to support the island financially for as little as a dollar a month, you too can become a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland and check out the levels and the report and the rewards. Uh, now, you can do a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland as Richard Nickel did last week. Cheers, Richard. Also, you can support the island by getting hold of some merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, beach towels, all that sort of stuff, tote bags, mugs of rage, all available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Remember, don't order the black mugs. I do have keychains, lapel pins and stickers. You can contact me directly for those. That can be done. Email cambo at truecrimeisland.com. It's also the best way to contact me personally for anything else such as case requests or just to say boom bagalanga. Now, you don't have to spend money to support the island. You can also rate, review and tell your friends, family and workmates about the island. And if they don't know how to tr- tune in, show them. I mean, I've got a new way now. Just go to YouTube. Search for True Crime Island on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and join the closed group on Facebook if you want. Shout out to Curtis in Melbourne. Boom, fuck a lunga, mate. So that's about it for the show tonight. Lots of love to Maggie James and I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, fuck a lunga. <laughs>